I love that that's common enough now in us that that felt awkward. That was great. <laughs> so that, that is a good sign. We're heading in good directions. So, good morning. If you don't know me, I'm Josh. Um, I actually get to serve on staff here as the, the worship and tech director of the church, and every now and then um, I'll get to the honor to preach to you. So Jeremy approached me about May and said, um, hey, are you interested in preaching again at some point this summer? And I was like, yeah, of course, I'd be honored to. Like, thank you so much. I'm excited. And he's like, okay, great. You're going to be in chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. It's fine. I was like, cool, okay. So I'm, I get, I'm preaching like three weeks or something. He's like, nope, just the one day. So here we are. Here we are. We're in chapter 11, verses 1 through 44 is the whole story of Lazarus, one of the most loved stories, one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. And so where are we at? Let, let's remember where we came from first. So chapter 11, what's unfolding here? The light has been shining. The darkness has hated it and has not been able to put the light out. The deep sin guilt of man has been demonstrated. The public ministry is coming to a close. All of the evidence has been provided for over the last three years of his ministry, and the nation's leaders have still rejected the Christ. This is the hinge point of the gospel that's going to take Jesus from his public ministry and all these miracles and signs that we've been seeing. This is the last sign that will lead Jesus into his suffering and his death. So this is the hinge point in the gospel. So as I was preparing to, to preach this group of texts this morning, I was, I was struggling quite a bit to, to pin down what angle am I going to approach this. We could read these 44 verses or even some of these 44 verses, the next five weeks, the exact same text, and you would hear five different sermons. That's how much there is to unpack and extract from this. So, so this morning, we're going to go this route. I'm going to give you what I believe to be um, some four big ideas, but these, these big ideas are a progression of logic, meaning if this is true, then I can believe this is true. This is true, then I can believe this is true. And we're going to follow that progression of logic this morning. So I think there are four big ideas I want you to hone in on. But before I ask you, or I, I let you know what these ideas are, let me ask you this. To the believer in the room and to the unbeliever in the room, what do you believe about how Jesus loves? What do you believe about how Jesus loves? So as you begin to answer that question as as you start thinking and you're processing, let's get to this first big idea. The, the first big idea that this text, I think, is calling us, is begging us to, to see and to admit, to declare is that, that you see more clearly the fullness of Jesus' humanity and the fullness of Jesus' divinity. So this is the first big idea. So would you go with me to verse 1? We're going to 1 and then 3 through 6. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. So verse 3 is interesting here. We see... So the sister sent to him saying this cryptic message. All they sent was, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's all they sent. And they're going to assume Jesus knows who he is, right? 
He whom you love. And, and the interesting part of this word love here is that you've heard that there are different words for love, and they mean different things, different kinds of love, right? The kind of love being used here is the phileo love, this friendship, this brotherly love. So Jesus says he loves Lazarus as a brother, as a friend. What's remarkable about this is that when used in this form, we see that Jesus' deep affection for Lazarus means that Lazarus is a man who has filled a need in Jesus' own life for a friend. That is the humanity of Christ showing. Jesus has need for friendship, and he found this in Lazarus. In verse 4, as we read verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Remember this first, because we're going to come back to it. This morning, as we have all these questions of why, God, why, why, and it doesn't make sense to how we love, we're going to come back to verse 4. It's for the glory of God, so that you may believe. So we look at three, it says phileo love, he loves Lazarus as a brother. Well, right after, again, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why, it almost just feels like, why did they add that in? He just said he loved them, now he's just, is he just including the sisters? Well, no, they changed the word of love here in the original text. Now it changes to that agape love, the divine love of God, that is, that is God's alone. So he loves Lazarus as a brother, as a friend. And it says he loves the sisters in Lazarus as a divine love. He loves them with a godly love. So as he loves him deeply as a friend and he hears this grievous news, what does this divine love lead him to do? Well, verse 6 says, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? If, if you have a friend, if I have a friend that I know is assumed that I can help if I just go to them. Wouldn't you go? Wouldn't you just pick up and leave? If you hear that somebody's stranded right now, are you not going to get in your car and go to them? But it says, what does this divine love? It just told us that he loves them, and it says he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why? Verse 4, for the glory of God. Why? So that you may believe. Why? What is the point of John writing this whole gospel? For the glory of God, so that you may believe that he is the Christ, and in believing, you will find eternal life in him. Verse 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Jesus is essentially saying in this verse 15, we just said, like, why would you not go? And then we see here, I'm glad I wasn't there. Not, not only am I not going, I'm glad that Lazarus has died. Remember, this is the man whom he loves. And he says, I'm glad I was not there. Why? For your sake, so that you may believe. Verse 4, for the glory of God, so that you may believe. We see, because Jesus knows that in coordination with this phileo love and in his divine agape love, it is better for people to believe in him than it is to prevent his own friend's death. That's a weighty statement that's being made here. So let me ask you again. What do you believe about how Jesus loves? Of course, Jesus knows what he's about to do, right? He knows what, what's going to happen as he says this. But first, he continues on, and he makes some pretty incredible claims still. So let's go to verse 17. 
And then 21 through 27 says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. It's verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus goes deeper. He says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Jesus speaks here as a man not fearful for his friend. He speaks with the divine authority given him. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. That is loaded language. Maybe not to us today. He's speaking to Jewish people. If he says, I am anything, their ears perk up. They know what he's saying. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is claiming divinity. Verse 32. Now when Mary came, so first was Martha, now Mary comes to Jesus and saw him. She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now this is the exact same thing that Martha just said, right? And we saw how Jesus responded. We saw that Jesus responded with this no fear, divine authority saying he will live again. I am the resurrection and the life. But how does he respond now to Mary? What does he do? Let's go on, verse 33. But when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And what happens? Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved them. So we see the question Lord, if you would have been here, he would not have died. And he said, I, I am the resurrection. He will live. And then Mary comes, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And he sees them, and in his compassion, Jesus weeps. See, when we talk of Jesus' humanity, we often hear that he hungered, he thirsted, he grew weary, needed sleep, um, that his body was destroyed, that he died. And all of that's true. And all of that points to the humanity of Jesus. That's true. But even more revealing into the humanity of Jesus is that he, like any human being, required friendship and someone who he could care for, someone that would care for him. So when he sees his friends grieving the death of Lazarus, who is also Jesus' close friend, he's deeply moved and troubled. And the God of the universe weeps. He knows more intimately than anyone how unnatural death is. Jesus' spirit in this moment shows us that it is right to mourn the fallen nature of creation. It is right to weep. Jesus weeps here as a friend of man. So verse 38, let's go on. So what happens next? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He, he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may, what? Believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He switches gears again, right? I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus weeps for his friend as a, man, as a friend of man, and he switches gears and raises Lazarus from the dead, showing his divine authority once again. Do you see more clearly the fullness of Jesus' humanity and the fullness of his divinity? So let me ask you again. What do you believe about how Jesus loves? I keep asking you this question because when we see Jesus clearly as who he truly is, the effect that's going to occur is that it allows you and me to trust and rest in the fact that Jesus loves better than you. Whatever your definition of love is, Jesus is better. Whatever you think would be loving to do, running to your friend in times of need, Jesus' love is better. See, he, he is fully man, and he understands us intimately in relationship, but he is fully God, and he sees past what we see. His love is otherly. It's better than yours and mine. So if Jesus is fully God, all-powerful, fully man, capable of sympathizing, truly relational with me, that means when he loves better than me and his idea is better, we look at something again. He says, well, he said that he's glad that he wasn't there to save him. How? Again, it's the same reason. Jesus was not getting lost in this miracle. He is seeing past the now. Yes, it is marvelous he was raised from the dead, but those around him in that moment, and often you and I, we kind of get... We kind of get lost and we can't see the forest for the trees kind of thing, right? But Jesus doesn't lose sight of the big picture because, yes, he was raised. Yes, he was dead for four days, and we should marvel in that. We should be in awe of what God has done in this miracle. But effectually, was this a resurrection? This miracle was effectually a resuscitation. Lazarus would die again. So if Lazarus would die again, if his hope was in this miracle... Is, is it not better off that he stayed dead? If his hope is just in this miracle alone, so what? He would die again. So Jesus knows that this miracle is just a sign. It's just pointing to something greater. And it's actually really beautiful because this is the last public miracle that Jesus has before, before the Pharisees actually instigate plans to murder Jesus. So the last miracle Jesus performed is raising a man from death, and that is the thing that sparks, that is the catalyst that sends Jesus to his grave. It's beautiful. But after Lazarus was raised, he would die again. After Jesus was raised, he would not. Jesus here, we see the foreshadowing being set that Jesus here is the better Lazarus. So, what do you believe about how Jesus loves? If he's fully man, fully human, my brother, my friend, if he's fully divine, all-powerful, if I trust that he loves better me, and I trust that he loves me, and he's invited me into an eternity of peace, only then can we, can we begin to wrestle with this next big idea I want to get into this morning. 
And this big idea is that God himself allows and even brings about suffering. God himself allows and even brings about suffering. Verse 4, we see that why did he die? Why did he stay? It is for the glory of God. God allowed this death for the glory of God. We see the blind man in chapter 9 just a little bit ago, and they said, Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? Jesus said, nobody sinned. He was born blind so that you may see the glory of God, that you may believe. He was born blind for a reason. Lazarus died for a reason. We see the faithful suffer in the scriptures in Job, and Job 13, 15, he says, though he slay me. Job attributes his, his persecution he's going through to God himself. I grew up a functional atheist, I would say. I grew up going to churches, but I was, I was in churches, but I, nothing was happening. My heart was not engaged with anything. Um, but I went, and my mom was a faithful servant of Jesus. She loved Jesus deeply. And she brought her kids every week, even though we never wanted to be there. Yet my mom was the same person that for most of her life suffered with anxiety and depression and suicidal tendencies. She loved God and she loved people deeply. And she prayed and I prayed, even though she's saying, Lord, if this is real, God, would you heal my mom of this? Would you take this from her? Would you please take this from her? And eventually, after coming home one night, after just being out at dinner, none of what she was struggling with was the cause, but yet she had just a heart failure and dies in our home as we're out at dinner. And I'm 14, just a kid. Why? I prayed, God, would you heal her? And then something else completely unexpected happened. Being a young adult later and, and being saved by the grace of Jesus and loving Jesus deeply and, and trying to love his people well. And we're, Bree and I are married for three years at this point and we're expecting our first child. And we're, we're going into the appointment to, to find out, is this a boy or a girl? It's, it's a super exciting day. And we get to the appointment and it wasn't, is it a boy or a girl? It's your, your child has a terminal illness. We've never seen a case of a child that would survive out of the womb. Why? We prayed for this child. God, why would you bring this? In this very church, we have people that have prayed and prayed that sickness would be removed and it isn't. People that have prayed and prayed that marriages would be restored and they're still not. They pray that children would come and they won't. Now, what I, what I don't want you to hear in this is that, that we shouldn't pray. It is good and it is right to be praying for healing and restoration. That is God's heart for his people and creation itself. It is good and right that we pray and that we stay fervent about that. God does still heal today. He does bring restoration today. That does happen. But what do I believe about how God loves when it doesn't? Do I believe about how God is loving me when this doesn't happen? Why, when Mary and Martha plead with the Lord, would you save my brother, does he instead wait? 
We know from this passage that he loved them. It says so in verse 5, with a divine love. So why does he allow Lazarus to suffer death, his family to mourn, have a funeral and a burial? If God is all-powerful, he's all-good, why do these things happen? If God, maybe you've asked yourself this question, if God really loved me, then why is this happening? What do you believe about how God loves? And, and, I, and I bear open all these wounds knowing full well that, that my answer is I don't know. And maybe that feels really unresolved this morning, but I don't know. None of us know. But here's what I can know. If this is true, if God himself allows and even brings about suffering, and if he's fully man, fully divine, and I trust that he loves better than me, you see the progression. So what, what, what comes from this? If he allows and brings about suffering, I do know this, that all of your suffering is totally and completely meaningful. None of it is wasted. None of it is wasted. An all-powerful God who's intimate, relational with me, he loves better than me, and he loves me, and he allows suffering, the only conclusion I can come to is that it is for something, that it means something, that we don't suffer to suffer, but God is doing something with it. Job 13, it doesn't just say, though he slay me. Job 13, verse 15 says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. How does Job say that? Because he knows he's loved. In Romans 5, Paul says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Praise be to God. Amen? And just to drive this home, see this in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And verse 16 and 17 says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, hear this, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Your suffering is doing something. But, but Josh, I can't see what it's doing. Of course you can't. Verse 18 says, as we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So all of your suffering is preparing in you an eternal weight of glory that you share in Christ and that will make you, whatever you go through in this life, it will make it seem momentary and light. Think of that my mom, my child, depression and anxiety that we've gone through in our family, it's momentary and light. In comparison with what? With the eternal weight of glory, with this eternal joy that is to come.
So what do we do with this? This is weighty. What do we do? What is the scripture calling us to say, now this? And I think the invitation this morning is just that it's asking us, would we learn as God's people to mourn well? Would we learn to lament well? See, Jesus, knowing the weight of eternal glory better than anybody, better than any human, still wept. So how do we begin to do this? How do we begin to learn to mourn well? Well, a good first step would be, would you be willing and seeking to step into uncomfortable and difficult seasons with your neighbor, with your brothers and sisters sitting next to you, with a stranger on the street? Would you be willing and seeking to step in to really uncomfortable, hard situations? Brie and I were driving yesterday, and we were listening to Rosaria Butterfield, and she, and she had this quote, and I was like, that, that's, that's so true, that's right. She said, it's really painful being in a church that only talks about all the good things God gives you. It's really painful being in a church that only talks about all the good things God gives you. Right, that's me, and that's you. We were sitting like, but I feel this. We should rejoice when rejoicing is called for, absolutely. But for this text today, it is, it is begging us, would you come, would you learn to mourn well. A good second step is be willing and seeking, on the flip side of this, be willing and seeking to invite brothers and sisters into it. Invite them into your suffering. So you, you weren't designed to suffer or to heal alone. When you're saved, when you say, I'm saved by Jesus, that is not a, a get out of hell stamp. That's not what that is. You are saved for something. You are saved into something. You are saved for good works and into the body. You're no longer your own. And that comes with suffering as well. Invite your brothers and sisters into your suffering. You weren't meant to do it alone. You were created for community. And lastly, fill your mind with the word of God and preach its truths to yourself every single day, every moment. If you do not have the word of God just ingrained in your, in your head, in your heart, and you don't have something to be able to go back to when it comes, you're going to break. But would you lean into community? Would you fill your head and your heart with the word of God? And would you preach its truths to you every single day? Your suffering is not meaningless. It's not meaningless. Every single ounce of it, every second that you endure is producing in you a glory that is shared with Christ. It is producing in you a comfort that is going to surpass all your understandings. And it assures you that you are known and you are cared for by a good father. And not only is it producing something in you, but every single moment of your suffering in obedience is a, is a bright and guiding light to those that are lost in a dark world. Your suffering is a bright light to those lost in a dark world, and it begs them, would you come? Would you find rest? How are they suffering well? That's the question that will spur in their hearts. How are they suffering well? Because suffering will come. So, Lord, that we would learn to suffer and mourn well. Amen. So what do we do? What do we believe about how Jesus loves if you believe that Jesus loves better than you and he loves you, would you trust in him? Would you trust that he gives 
meaning to all suffering. And would you find rest in that? Would you pray with me? Lord, Lord that, that we would learn to mourn and lament well. God, as we see from your text and we see that, that you are in control of all things, when things come that we don't understand, would you give us faith to believe? And in this place, as this place is filled with the suffering, Lord, would you bring healing? God, would you bring restoration to our people here? God, in all the ways that people are hurting, through addictions, through anxiety, through depression, the marriages, through children, Lord, would you bring healing? Would you bring comfort? Would you bring peace? We ask that you do that, Lord. And when you don't, would you help us to believe in you and to be faithful servants of you? When you don't, God, would you help us to know that it's producing in us a glory for you that we get to share in and that we get to show to the world the light of Christ. We thank you that we know you're good. We know you're for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. We're going to enter into a time of communion that we get to do every week. And... Um, there's two stations up front here, and there's one in the back, and there's some gluten-free options if you need that. Um, if, you, if you would say that you are not of the body of Christ this morning, and we just ask that you refrain from partaking, this is a meal of faith. It wouldn't do anything for you. It might even work against you. Um, and there will be some slides on the screen, though. I want you just to process. I want you to think through and read and consider. Read and consider, and, and I would challenge you to ask yourself, what do I believe about how God's love, and if all this is true, is it better than mine? It, it does, is he capable of loving better than me if this is all is true? And would you ask him, Lord, if, would, would you reveal yourself to me? God, if you're really out there, would you, would you reveal yourself to me and make my heart believe this morning? And maybe something's been working in you this morning and, and you are believing. Um, come and talk to somebody, and it could be your first time. Come and partake of the table this morning. Jesus has suffered more than any other man or woman ever will. His body is broken for you. His blood is shed for you. And he has taken all sin on himself and died a death that you and I deserved. And yet he still bids his people, would you come to the table over and over. So would you come that we may remember and we may partake in the righteousness of Jesus this morning. So when you're ready, 